In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Perhaps you remember this commercial in the 80s, some of you. I was born in 85, and somehow I know this. I know, there goes my age. I, I somehow remember um, this commercial. It, it's A man stands up with an egg. He says, this is your brain. Yes. <laughs> it's famous, right? Cracks it open and puts it on an already hot frying pan, and the egg sizzles. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? That came to my mind as I'm reading Lamentations. Because Lamentations is a horrific picture, not of your brain on drugs, but of your heart on sin. What happens in this book is a result of Israel's persistent and continual and generational rebellion against God's commands. And we see something worse than an egg being fried in a frying pan. (laughs) Sin kills. We need to take seriously that the scriptures tell us sin kills. It is death. You all know Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. It is the payment for what we do. Because sin is the direction that takes us away from the presence of God, which divorced from his eternal life means that you, by definition, have temporal life. The wages of sin is death. Not only in the future, but now in the experience we have, we're either living fragmented lives, being pulled apart by desires and demands, or we're living holistic, healed lives with the triune God and his eternal life dwelling within us. Sin kills. And we must take seriously that God is giving us a lively path. And to me, that was one of the most startling things about Lamentations, is it was a stark, hellish reminder of where the wages of sin leads. It was startling, I say, not because it's a book I've never read, um, I love Jeremiah as an author. He wrote Lamentations. And so I love all of Jeremiah's writings. They they have a very near spot in my heart for very specific reasons. Um, but also because um, those who attend the Good Friday service know that for two years now, we've read Lamentations in its entirety at the opening of the Good Friday service. And it's somber. It's sobering. It's terrifying. Some of the language that's used in this book. A a lament is a weep. It's a cry. It's a complaint against God for the pain one's going through. And so the lamentations are that. So here's what happened. Babylon comes up to Jerusalem. This is five... Well, Jerusalem falls in 586 BC. But Babylon comes up. They lay siege around the city. Then they breach the walls. And then they sack the temple and burn it down. This is how sin works. Sin first sieges us. It surrounds us. It cuts off our life from God. Then, in time, it will break into the heart. It will breach the wall. And then, it raids the temple of God. Because you and I are the temple of God. And when sin, when we allow sin to get in deep enough, we're no longer filled with the presence of God. We're filled with the presence of death. And that's exactly what happens in the fall of Jerusalem. So Lamentations. Um, this is this is one of five. I, I didn't get to say this earlier, but now we're saying it. This is one of five small scrolls in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And these five small scrolls were all um, bound up together in one scroll. 
And they were read at specific feasts in the Jewish calendar. Three of these feasts God commanded. Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Two of them, the Jews uh, created their own cultural reminders of God. The other feast is the, um, the ninth of Ab, and the other one is Purim. We're actually hearing about the ninth of Av tonight, and we're hearing about Purim next week. So here's how this lined up. Passover, they read the Song of Songs. We read that right after Easter. Um, Ruth was connected to Pentecost, and we looked at Ruth last week. The third book of the scrolls is Lamentations, and that's on the ninth of Av. The ninth of Av is the date when the Babylonians breached the wall of Jerusalem. And the Jews to this day, uh, it's not a feast, it's a fast, the ninth of Av. And they remember the fall of Jerusalem, which we see in Lamentations, the, the time the Romans sacked Jerusalem in AD 70, and all the horrific things that happened to Jews up to the Holocaust in more recent memory. All of these things are mourned, and, the, and it's a, it's a, it's a feast, a fast of repentance, and Lamentations is read on that date. This, by the way, was likely done in Jesus' time because you may remember the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, why don't your disciples keep the fast? He was, they were referring to, likely, uh, there were four fasts that they kept through the year. One of them was the ninth of Av. And that's actually recorded in Zechariah. So it's even earlier than Jesus. Um, and then um, the fourth book is Ecclesiastes. That's done at the Feast of Tabernacles when all the people would come and camp out around the temple in Jerusalem. They're, they're sleeping on the streets and on roofs everywhere. The city's crammed, a big old camp out. Uh, Ecclesiastes is read. As they're gathering out of the temple, they're reading about a book about vanity of vanities. Isn't that interesting? Um, of course, we covered Ecclesiastes last summer, so we will not be doing that next. The last of the scrolls is Esther. Esther... Um, celebrates the Feast of Purim. And Purim was established because Esther was a time when God miraculously saved his people from utter destruction, which you'll hear about next week. And that's an annual reminder of God's providence. Um, don't miss next week, by the way. We have a guest speaker. Okay. Last time, I know, you guys always think when I say that, it's me playing somebody else. But no, it's literally it's literally somebody else this time, okay? I'm not going to be acting. There will be another flesh and body up here. There will. I, I'm telling you that. So don't miss that one. It's someone you know. So <laughs> I'm just not going to blow the surprise. Um, okay, so here we go. Um. Zedekiah was the last king of Israel. We read all about this in Jeremiah and his records. Zedekiah decided to stop paying tribute to the Babylonians. The Babylonians are overtaking the world. They're swallowing up kingdom after kingdom. They come up to Jerusalem. They swallowed every city of Israel all the way down to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the last standing stronghold in the nation. And Babylon comes up to it and they don't actually want to fight. Because you're right, you lose your army when you fight. Every general prefers to come up to a city and say, let's strike a deal. You pay me, we'll leave you alone. You serve me, I'll leave you alone. That was the deal. So Jerusalem was spared. But Zedekiah, under all this um, nationalistic fervor, decides to give in to the people's wishes and rebels against Babylon. Well, Babylon is like, oh, no way. So they come up and he basically says, you're not paying me? Fine. The wages of rebellion is death. 
And so they surround the city for two years. This is called siege warfare. Siege warfare is when you don't actually fight. You just camp your troops around the city so that people can't leave. What happens when you can't leave? You run out of food. You run out of water. When people start to die, you have nowhere to put them. So the city becomes a breeding ground of disease, cannibalism, violence, murder. It's a horrific... It's it's hell on earth. Siege warfare is one of the worst things to go through. For two years, they're going through this. Lamentations makes comments about mothers eating their children. Then, mercifully... The Babylonians break through the wall. That's the ninth of Av, the ninth day of the... Here, here we go. Jeremiah, it's right here on the left of your Bible. Jeremiah chapter 52. Jeremiah 52, um, verse 6. It says, On the ninth day of the fourth month, so that's the ninth of Av, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made. See, the Babylonians know, oh, they're eating people. It's time to attack. Like, who can lift a sword when you're in that constraint, right? So then they, they make a breach in the city wall. And all the men of war fled and went out from the city by night by the way of a gate between the two walls by the king's garden while the Chaldeans were around the city. Okay, so the king and his men flee, cowards. Um, it was his decision and he flees. Uh, Jeremiah 52, verse 12. One month later, we see, in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Nebuzardan, the captain of the bodyguard who served the king of Babylon, entered Jerusalem. So there's some sort of control over the city now. Right? The populace is controlled. The, the, the valiant soldiers have fled. And now the, the general gets to come tromping on in in victory, victorious style. And what do you do? When you're the victory, you got your foot on the enemy's neck. What do you do? You make a display. So this is what he does. Verse 13. He entered Jerusalem, and he burned the house of the Lord, that's the temple, and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, who were with the captain of the guard, broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. It's denuded. It's naked. It's been completely ransacked and the worst part is the temple of the lord has collapsed the people are now in grief god has abandoned us the wages of sin is death okay but what i love about this is that lamentations is jeremiah's reaction to these events you just read we go right from jeremiah to lamentations and he sits down and weeps and these are the lament poems. They're poems that come out of him. I love this because we see things that grieve us or we see things that are horrific. And sometimes we don't know what to do with it. We shove it down in or we react with anger. Or we make an opinion or we point a finger. But what we must learn to do as Christians, like Jeremiah does here, is we must learn to turn our psychological states into spiritual states. In other words, you feel an emotion, anger. What a mere mortal does is he vents the anger. But turning that psychological state into a spiritual state means you turn toward God with that and you give it to him in conversation. 
You're suffering, you're sad, you're in pain, you're in grief, you're angry, you're tempted, you're happy, you're praising him. Something wonderful happens. We turn these psychological states into spiritual states by turning them to God in prayer. And that's what Jeremiah does. He sees this and he turns all of this angst and he, he, he turns it not inward, but he turns it toward God. And in doing so, we have these five funeral poems about the death of the city, about the grief of the people of God, and these are now being used to lead all of God's people through their grief toward a hope and a future. That's what Jeremiah is doing here. He's not just a poet, he's a pastor, and he's leading the people onward. Let's turn what we're feeling into a communion with God. Even if the words are ugly, it's better than doing something ugly. So each of these, there's five poems in the book. Each of these poems are what you call an acrostic. An acrostic means every letter of, um, the first letter of every line starts with a specific letter. And in this case, it's the alphabet. The Hebrew alphabet's 22 letters. So verse 1 is the letter A. Verse 2 is the letter B, the equivalent thereof. Verse uh, 3 is C. It goes down the alphabet. Five acrostic poems. You know what Jeremiah is doing here? He's telling us that this grief is so deep, we can't ignore it. We need to address this grief from A to Z. We must give it vent. Because here's what we do. There's a danger when we see someone suffering, or our own, we tend to just want to gloss over it. Make light of it. Oh, it'll get better. Romans 8.28, all things work together. It's a great verse, but sometimes we moralize it a little too much because we don't actually want to feel someone's pain. That's not what Jeremiah does here. He gives it full vent, the whole alphabet, for five poems. But the, the acrostic also says, but suffering and evil does not get to have the whole say in our lives. Because though we're going from A to Z, there's a Z. And suffering has an ending point. It will not last forever. There is a point when we must in, we must go into this and feel it and give it to God. But there's also a point when we need to stop identifying ourselves by our griefs or by our hurts or by our weaknesses. And say, God, give me the grace to grow up and to move forward. And that's the beautiful thing about the acrostic is it does not allow continual and endless grief. It says there is an ending point. So Jeremiah is pastorally leading the people through grief into a newer and brighter future if they're so willing to go A through Z. Acrostics also give us shape and direction. Shape. Notice an acrostic isn't random because grief is random. Do you know that? When you go through grief, your mind tends to continually loop back to that trauma, to that wound. And you're never moving in a direction. You don't have shape. Your memories are fragmented. But an acrostic puts things in order. It gives you a narrative. It gives you a direction. It says, pick it up here and let's go this way. We'll figure it out one step at a time. So here's the shape of our acrostics. These five poems. It's easy, by the way. Each chapter is one of the poems. So it was really easy for them to figure that out. It's like, oh, here's, the, here's Z. So here's chapter two. Here's Z. Here's chapter three. Um, they work like this. Ch- the first poem is the death of Jerusalem. It gives us the setting. We're going to see. here. Oh, here's what I'm seeing. It's terrible. Poem number two, chapter two, is the conflict. The conflict of this story is God. God's the conflict. 
Because he is the one who's brought the judgment upon us. And you know what? That might sound crude. And like, how can you worship God and say, you're the enemy? Well, what they're doing is they're wrestling through the fact that we sin and we are getting what we deserve. And it's easier to name God than to have this mysterious cosmic forces against me. That's, that's frightening. But to have a name and that God actually does punish those whom he loves because he loves, because he cares. He wants to get his people on the right track. Chapter two is about naming the conflict. Chapter three, the third poem is the climax. It's finding hope by turning to God in repentance. So Jeremiah leads them in confession, communal confession. And then chapter four is the falling action that God will judge fairly. Eventually, Israel will be restored and their enemies will be judged for what they've done. And then chapter five is the resolution. It is a prayer of humility. That's the people's response after Jeremiah has led them through this funeral service. They fall on their faces in humility. Now, chapter chapter five is not technically an acrostic. It's the only one that breaks the A, B, C, D, A through Z. But it's 22 verses, so it's actually covering each letter of the alphabet, but it's not in its ordered form. And that actually draws our attention to it. If you're reading in Hebrew, you're like, oh, this one's different. And that's meant to show us this is the resolution. This is where the people end up. They end up praying the way they ought to in humility. This is the path to healing. So that's what it looks like. Let's read through some of it. We're not going to read through every part because we do that at Good Friday. Um, But we're going to do some of the highlights. So let's start with verse 1. It's Lamentations 1, verse 1. The refrain of chapter 1 is there is no one to comfort. There's no comfort. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Go down to verse 7. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old when her people fell into the the hand of the foe And there was none to help her. Verse 9. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Yes, that's a euphemism, by the way. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. Verse 16. For these things, Jeremiah says, I weep. My eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me. One to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. 17. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. Verse 21. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. 
That's chapter one. Comfort is far removed. Chapter two. The enemy is God. Someone's audio Bible's going? (laughs) Don't look, anyone. Just look at your Bible. (laughs) Lamentations chapter 2, the second poem, verse 1. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. That's deep. I mean, Israel was ascended to heaven. They were the footstool of God. And now they've been sent down and God doesn't even remember his footstool. It's what it feels like, right? He remembers them, but it feels like they're abandoned. Verse um, verse 13. What can I say for you? To what compare you? O daughter of Jerusalem, what can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? A poem saying, I I don't even know how to comfort you. I don't even know where to begin. There's no context. That's how ruined you are. This is this is profoundly unsettling, isn't it? Verse 20, uh, chapter 2, verse 20. Now there's this desperate cry, look, O Lord, and see, with whom have you dealt this? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young woman and my young men have fallen by the sword. Hey, you have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. But chapter 3, there's a turn. Now, in chapter 3, becomes more first person. And um, there's so much hurt, God's not even addressed by name. Notice, 3 verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me, he turns his hand. Verse 4. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. Verse 5. He has besieged and enveloped me. Verse 6. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I can though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a, set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. Verse 15. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from Yahweh. Finally, the enemy's named. But he turns so quick in verse 21. But this I call to mind. And therefore, I have hope. What does he do? He calls something to mind. And this recollection 
brings hope. Verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Yes, even this morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. What a declaration of faith in the midst of this. This is the turn toward hope. And then in verse 39, he leads the community into confession. Why should a living man compl- why should a living man complain? A man about the punishment of his sins. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. For we have transgressed and rebelled and you have not forgiven. At least not yet. This call to repentance. Jeremiah is identifying why all this has happened. We've done this. God didn't just suddenly wake up one day and say, I'm mad at you. Boof. He was saying, go this way. It will be well with you. We woke up and said, we're going to go that way because we think that's better. And now we figured out, oh, that was not a good decision. This is what's befallen us because we left the ways of the Lord. If the garden of paradise is here and you want to live in the wilderness, you're going to reap the benefits of the wilderness. That's what he's saying. Let's return to the Lord. Let's wake up and confess that we have betrayed him. He's faithful. He's merciful. His steadfast love endures forever. So he just said, so let's return to him. And then the chapter ends with a long intercessory prayer. In verse 43 to 66, Jeremiah is praying for the people. Let's turn our hearts to him. And now he's praying on behalf of the community. Brothers and sisters, when we get hurt and then we turn ourselves to the Lord, he gives us the strength. He picks us up. And then he says, now go and intercede for the rest of the world. For they need your prayers. Because you now know how much it can hurt to be flat on your face. Don't go and condemn the world. Go and pray for the world. Chapter 4. It comes back to God and the terrors of the city and what they're going through. But verse 22, there's this this shimmer of hope. 4 verse 22. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. So, a little backstory is Edom. Remember, Edom is, um, you had uh, um, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob became the people of Israel and Esau became the people of Edom. And when Jerusalem was being sacked and raided by the Babylonians, Edom danced and celebrated and exchanged gifts. It was like Christmas for them. And then they went down themselves and took some of the big screen TVs out of their stores and were looting and celebrating. So God's like, oh yeah, Edom? You think you got away with that? So here's the beautiful thing about 422 is we said the fourth poem is about judgment. God is saying, look, yes, Israel, you've been judged. But I'm going to restore you. And Edom, those who gloated over your destruction, they'll get their turn. And then chapter 5, the last poem. Remember, this one breaks from the acrostic pattern, but it has the same number of verses as letters in the Hebrew poetry. So it keeps the tradition, but it's bringing our attention to it. 
So chapter 5, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna go through the whole prayer. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Remember, they try to lean on Egypt and Assyria rather than God to help them. Our fathers sin and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We have nowhere else to turn, God. Hear our prayer. This is the humility they're in. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill and young boys and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate. The young men, their Music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. The finger pointing of Adam and Eve is gone. The finger pointing, God be merciful to me, a sinner. As we confess Psalm 51, against you, you alone have I sinned. What is evil in your sight, I have done. So you are just in your sentence without reproach in your judgment. For this, verse 17, our heart has become sick. For these things, our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself. Not restore us to the days when we had Netflix and Wi-Fi and bread in our fridge. Restore us to yourself. This is what we're yearning for. Restore us to ourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Unless you have utterly rejected us. And let's put in parentheses. Because you would be just in that dis- in if you decided to. And you remain exceedingly angry with us. The book ends with timidity, with uncertainty. There's this deep confession and humility. And it lays it all out before God and basically says, God, here's my neck. Drop the guillotine or lift me up. They put themselves completely at his mercy. And this is... What humility looks like is when the Christian stops strutting around like I'm saved by grace and you are not um, in your face. Um, It's when we understand that, yes, we know because through Christ that God is gracious and merciful and he will forgive those who are willing to confess. But at the same time, we understand deeply and we know in our hearts that we don't deserve the grace and we never come presumptuously to the Lord. We come knowing that he has been so good. And I've been so unworthy. And we continue in a place of humility. That's where we receive the gifts of God. Throughout chapter 1 and in 2 verse 13, 
you have this continual idea of no comfort. Uh, 2 verse 13, you might remember. What can I say for you to what compare you, daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken you to that I may comfort you? Like, I don't even know where to start. I don't know how to comfort you. Who can heal you? Because your ruin is vast as the sea. There's this, there's a sense of there is no comfort. But at the very heart of this funeral service, chapter three, we just read a moment ago, Jeremiah finds hope by calling to mind his creedal belief in God. He calls to mind, he says, despite what I'm seeing, I am choosing to remember the creeds that we confess in our belief of God. And I'm using that language intentionally. What he recites in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22, he is actually reciting portions of something that reappears throughout the Old Testament in Joel and Exodus and many times in the Psalms. You know what this is. It's when Moses was present, when God showed himself to Moses. Do you remember this? He said, Moses, you cannot see my face and live. So hide behind this rock and I will let you see my backside as I pass by. And when he passes by, what Moses hears is the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, a God slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and keeping steadfast love and faithfulness for thousands of generations, yet not forgetting the sinner. And Moses falls on his face and says, oh, Lord. If we have found favor in your sight, please lead us and abide among us, even though we are stubborn and stiff-necked people. And please take us. Pardon our iniquity and sin, and please take us as your people. Three key words in here. Jeremiah 3, verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, keeping steadfast love and faithfulness. The steadfast love of the Lord, uh, verse 23 says, Great is your faithfulness. Verse 22 also says mercies. The Lord, the Lord of God, merciful and gracious. These three words, the same Hebrew words that show up in that Exodus passage, which is echoed in the Psalms and in Job and throughout. It's weaved really all over the Old Testament. And by hearing these echoes, you get the sense the Jews recited these words. They knew these words so well that Moses revealed to them that they believe that this is who our God is. And here in this moment of anguish, this this, this creedal belief in God comes out of Jeremiah as he chooses to focus his mind on the one who is stable throughout the rest of everything falling apart. And yet what you notice is he's not simply reciting old words. These words are rehashed in a new way that fits and details the new experience of which they're going through. The same Lord who is merciful and gracious and faithful and whose hesed, steadfast love endures forever. It is new every morning. A new touch to what they understand about God. He calls this to mind. And that's what we must do in times of pain and suffering, of confusion, of the world falling apart. Boy, it would have been so much better to see the church call to mind our creedal beliefs in God rather than pointing fingers at different politicians and ranting and raving about what they're telling us we can and cannot do. It was kind of ugly for a while. But Jeremiah would have been a great counselor had we listened. So here's what we as Christians have. We have creedal comfort we find comfort the jeremiah is saying there is no comfort but we find comfort in christ and we have certain beliefs about christ that give us comfort in all situations first christ is crucified that is a core belief of the christian faith 
Christ is crucified. How does this help us? <laughs> How does this give us comfort? Um, remember 422, chapter 4, verse 22? It said, The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. I, you, he will keep you in exile no longer. It's accomplished. So this, these echoes of no comfort, no one to comfort, no one to comfort, and then your punishment is paid for. Your exile is going to come to an end. Do you know what happens? There's this great prophet named Isaiah, and in one of the greatest chapters of his great prophecy, you hear these words at the opening of Mark's gospel, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Yeah? John the Baptist is citing Isaiah chapter 40, saying, I am that voice. What's the context? The Jews would have known. But what's the context? What does John mean? He says, I am the voice in the wilderness. Here's what Isaiah 40 verse 1 says. Comfort. Comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. She's gotten more than she actually deserved, God's saying. He's saying the Babylonians went too far in punishing her. It's all judged with them later. Comfort. Jeremiah, there's no comfort. Isaiah, John the Baptist comes. There is comfort. I'm preparing the way of the comforter. He's coming. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Um, John was announcing that he's coming. And this was important because suffering can feel so lonely. No one wants to enter into people's suffering. And our culture hates it, it abhors it. And that's what we see in Lamentations chapter 2, verse 15. And this is so cool. You got to look at it. Lamentations 2, verse 15. It says, all who pass along the way, clap their hands at you. So imagine people walking by Jerusalem on the highway. They're like, <laughs> look at the smoke rise. They're clapping their hands. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? Is this really it? This heap of rubble, the smoke, the ash? This verse shows the loneliness of suffering. No one wanted to join and say, oh, poor people, let us help you. It's like, ha, 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 look at them. But in Christ, that's what John the forerunner was telling us, that in Christ, God enters into our suffering and screams alongside us. God didn't just say, oh, look at them. Oh, what a shame. He said, oh, look at them. What a shame. And then he stepped into the ruins of Jerusalem and started to raise lepers and blind and mute and deaf and demon-possessed and calling fishermen. And Christ entered into the scene and screamed with us. And this is precisely what Mark wants us to know in his gospel. Mark 15. You guys know this well. Um, hear these echoes. Mark 15, verse 29. Those who passed by... See that in Lamentations 2, verse 15, all who pass along the way? Mark, those who pass by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple, the temple's destroyed in Lamentations, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. 
theologians are heavy that Mark is intentionally bringing lamentations into the scene of Christ's crucifixion. What is he doing? He's saying, we have creedal hope that in our pain and in our confusion, in our suffering, we have comfort in the fact that God entered into our pain and shared it with us. And in fact, he went deeper. He went beneath our pain so that there is nowhere we can go where we don't find his presence and his comfort. That's what Mark's telling us that in the cross, that's what it says to us. We have comfort in our creedal belief that Christ is crucified. So Christ becomes, Christ crucified becomes our God-given replacement for the death of Jerusalem and the temple. In other words, what you're seeing here in Lamentations with the city being collapsed and the temple being collapsed, that is Christ. He is the Jerusalem and the temple and it is collapsed as he takes our sins upon him. This is why we read Lamentations on Good Friday. It is a graphic metaphor of our Savior being brought to death for us. And we can find comfort. Jeremiah now gets to see Christ. But man, if he had known then, here's the comfort. Christ crucified. Our last creedal comfort is Christ risen. He's not just the God who died and like, okay, cool. Now we know that when we die, at least he's there. Like, no, he's also the God that takes these bad things and death and he inverts them into something beautiful. I need you guys to understand that Christ's resurrection is not merely consolation for the life we never had. Like the Jews aren't, and Christians, like people, Christ is not just going to console us. Like, oh, here's the resurrection. You got all that was stripped away. You can have it back now. No, the resurrection is more than consolation. The resurrection is restoration of the life we always wanted. It's taking, in other words, that which was ruined and not just giving it back, but giving it back in something we never dreamed it could have been. Something we yearned for it to actually have been. Like, it's better than it was that it, it, the resurrection doesn't only renew our bodies, but it even renews the suffering and the evil that we suffered. It renews those things. That's why the Bible says the bad, evil things will be remembered no more, because they are transformed. The resurrection is universal. It covers every inch of God's creation. The earth, our tragedies, our bodies, these are all brought into the light of the conquered, risen Christ conquering he's not conquered excuse me the conquering risen christ even the bad things are now being used somehow for good now romans 8 28 is an appropriate thing site all things work together for good here's how Fyodor Dostoevsky, in his famous novel the brothers care of here's how he put it he said i believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for and that all humanity or all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the, impot- the impotent and infinitely small, I don't know what this means, Euclidean mind of man that's in the world's finale at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all all the blood that they've shed, that it will make not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. Long wordy Russian style way of saying, (laughs) Um, we're not only going to say, okay, it's okay. Now that we're in eternity, it's all okay. We're actually going to say, wow, all of that actually made eternity better. C.S. Lewis puts it in such simpler terms. They say of some temporal suffering, 
No future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backward and return even that agony into a glory. Glorious. If we can find comfort in Christ through our own creedal declarations that he's crucified and he's risen, we'll be good. And now, if we can find comfort in Christ, we can give comfort to each other. Lamentations does not explain away or solve our suffering. Nowhere does it try to give us like, oh, it's fine. Here's your argument against it. Rather, Lamentations enters into and shares our suffering. And that's all we can do for another. I can't sit there and reason with, this is why this happened to you. And they're like, oh, thank you, Pastor. I understand now. I feel good. (laughs) Not how that works. Christ didn't come to earth and say, oh, all you sinners, this is all you need to do and you'll be good. He entered into it. He showed us. He went there with us and pulled us out. That's what we do for one another. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we are abundantly in comfort too. See, cross-resurrection work together. Whenever we enter into suffering with another, we find resurrection. That's the Christian way. We never have to fear lowering ourselves, humiliating ourselves. We never have to fear the things that happen to us because if we're willing to be humble and come before God empty of ourselves, he will rework all in a glorious fashion. So we're um, celebrating Barnabas Sunday and this just coincidentally lined up in such a beautiful way. Brothers and sisters, if we're to imitate the early church as Barnabas modeled, the best way we can love one another in times of grief and suffering is to share that grief and suffering with each other. Sometimes money doesn't fix things. Sometimes, oh, I have an old guitar, here you go. Sometimes that doesn't fix things. Sometimes what we must do is weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Three Bible, three very short verses for you. Galatians 6.2 Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Wow. By bearing our burdens with each other, you fulfill the law of Christ. Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We feel one another's aches and pains if we are united as a body. And 1 Corinthians 12, verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, All rejoice together. No one should suffer alone. Because suffering shrinks the soul when it's done alone. But rather, suffering can be the expansion and enlargement of the soul when we bear each other's burdens. We go down to the pit together. We weep together. We look to God together. We declare our creedal beliefs that he's crucified and risen. And we together find his life. That's what it takes. So let us not be afraid of concluding our episodes 
keep it kind of broad. <laughs> Let's not be afraid of concluding our episodes with the humiliating prayer of Lamentations 5, the heart of that prayer. Oh God, I understand that I'm not worthy of any good. I mean, who am I to complain that this is happening? Like, I deserve worse. But I know that you're good. I know that you're gracious. And I will wait in hope on whatever you have to do. As we empty ourselves of us and our pride and our expectations of grandeur and and appeasement and pleasure, as we empty our hearts of ourselves, we create massive space for God. And when God comes into our hearts, we have infinite space for each other. But I have to get Brandon's big, fat selfishness out. And once I can get that heart enlarged, that's when it's possible to bear with one another's burdens. That's what the Bible's calling us to do. That's what lamentation seems to do. When we end in humility, we end with a unification. This is how God heals us. This is how he heals others. May God grant us humility to enlarge our hearts for each other and for the whole world. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner.